As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, today marks week three of the vision series. And um, all of the vision series, everything that we're going to talk about, centers around a single phrase. And if you've been here the last few weeks, hopefully by now you know what that phrase is. And I thought about like having us like say like memorize it and like chant it together or something. Um, but it would have been weird. So um, I'm just going to read it. Uh, we at River's Edge are a, a family of missionary disciples who live to see God's will done in Spokane as it is in heaven. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're taking our time and unpacking this phrase and what it means for us. So if you were with us for our first official Sunday two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the idea of family. In particular, what it means to be the family of God uh, adopted in and through Jesus. And then uh, last week, week two of the vision series, we, we talked about uh, the missional aspect of this family, uh, that the church as a redemptive body uh, doesn't exist for itself alone, uh, that it's actually part of a bigger picture, that it's actually part of God's mission of calling the world back to himself, that in God's plan for the redemption of humanity, he actually wants to use a select group of human beings to accomplish it which is a pretty remarkable thing. And so uh, the easiest way to sum up last week is, is this idea that part of our identity is that we're sent ones, which is another word for missionary. So, so we're just sent ones uh, as a community, uh, as part of God's redemption plan, and that should deeply affect uh, our, our day in and day out life together as individuals, as a community, and as a church. Today, we are continuing in the vision series by unpacking the third identity marker, which is disciple. So we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? If you were with us through uh, the summer as we gathered in the park, you'll remember that at one point we attempted to answer a very similar question. And so if you were with us through the summer, hopefully uh, some of what follows will sound familiar to you. And if you're new to church or this language sounds strange or foreign of disciple or discipleship, uh, hopefully it'll make a lot more sense in a few minutes. So we're going to get started today in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or an app or whatever, uh, go ahead and open it or um, open it up to um, Matthew chapter 4 verse 18 and we'll get started there. The first few chapters of Matthew... Um, tell the story of a man named Jesus who emerges from obscurity at around the age of 30. And up to this point in his life, um, he's been living in a small town in a very unimportant part of Israel, and he's been working as a carpenter, or a better translation would probably be a, a stonemason. And, and he comes on the scene uh, preaching a very simple message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And suddenly he begins to attract a lot of attention. And then very early on, uh, we read this scene in Matthew chapter 4. This section in my Bible is labeled, Jesus Calls His First Disciples. Starting in verse 18. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. 
At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. At the foundation of Jesus' work in the world sits a bold and simple call to seemingly ordinary people. Come follow me, Jesus says and I will make you fishers of men. And in this strange and pivotal moment that we just read, the very first disciples are born. Now, the word disciple isn't something that we really use in common English day to day, um, and especially not outside of the church, but the original word used here is methetes. Can you say methetes? Right, and methetes um, can be translated follower, learner, students, or perhaps the best translation for our purposes is apprentice. And it's important that we understand the basic concept here, because in the ancient Near East, uh, the, the concept of discipleship was about more than following. Uh, most of us have apps on our phone that tell us how many followers we have and who we're following. And as a result, I think that concept of being a follower has become a little bit watered down. Because according to Instagram, most of us are followers of Matt Karsh and Justin Bieber. Okay? But but to be a disciple, some of you are looking at me like, how does he know follow Instagram? But to be a disciple or an apprentice was about more than following. It was about more than being a fan. It it was even about more than being a student or simply learning from someone. To be a disciple in the first century, um, you had to follow your rabbi or teacher wherever he went. You would do what he did, and you would would just mimic, follow him. Not like for class time, a few hours a day or whatever, but like 24-7 you would live in his shadow. You were literally a follower of your rabbi, learning everything that you could from him. And and this method of learning was the pinnacle of the Jewish education system. It it was the first, it was the the Ivy League of the first century. And and the idea itself was actually borrowed from Greek philosophy uh, long before Jesus was born. But this system of learning within Israel, was reserved for the best of the best. So, if you had the right combination of education and intellect and family origin and personal connections, if you had all of that, then you could apply to be a disciple under a rabbi. And if you were accepted, your goal as a disciple would have been threefold. First, your goal would have been to learn your rabbi's yoke, which is unusual language that we don't really use, but it means to to understand the way your rabbi approaches life. What are his thoughts on God? How does he go about his life? What are his thoughts? How does he read the scriptures? What's his theology? Like, how how does he approach all of that stuff? I want to learn and absorb that. Second, in the process of that, your goal was to become like your rabbi, 
as you were following him and observing, you would begin to, to mimic and copy the way that he taught and the way that he spoke and the way that he read and the things that he did, becoming more and more like him. You, you wanted to live and breathe the way that your rabbi lived and breathed. And finally, your last goal was to carry on your rabbi's work in the world. Meaning that the end goal of discipleship, after years of shadowing and training and going through this intensive process, the goal was that your rabbi would one day turn to you and say, you're ready. Go into the world and make more disciples. So the goal was literally uh, to be transformed into your rabbi over time. And the first disciples would have known this culturally. The word disciple doesn't really mean very much to us, even within the church nowadays. We're not really sure what that means. But in the first century, it was a term that was loaded with implication. Because everyone knew that it was impossible to follow someone like that and to not become like them. This is why Jesus told them, the student is not above the teacher or rabbi. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. It was a continual process of transformation. And while the term disciple may sound churchy or religious or whatever, ultimately to be a disciple of someone or something is simply to be shaped by it. And by that definition, every single human being is, is discipled by something. We're all shaped by something. For example, virtually everyone on earth is powerfully shaped by their family of origin or your absence of family. Whatever family you came, powerfully shaped who you are and the way you think and approach life. The culture that we've been born into, again, powerfully shapes us. Our thoughts, moment by moment, are literally shaped and changed based on the music that we listen to and the movies that we watch and the friends that we surround ourselves with. There's a sense in which all of these things are discipling us and teaching us what life is about and how to best spend our time and what we should, how we should feel about the world around us, what goals we should set, all of it. We're all shaped by the forces of our lives but many of these forces are, are completely random. We didn't get to choose them. They, they just, they're just around us. And, and many of those forces are neutral when it comes to the things of God. Uh, and many of those forces are antagonistic to God and his kingdom. And so to become a disciple of Jesus simply means that we allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus that we actually open up all of our lives to his lordship and his authority and his grace and his forgiveness and his love. And we say, Jesus, I want you to shape all of me. I want you to shape my emotional makeup and my thoughts and my personalities and healing of past wounds. We're allowing ourselves to be reparented by Jesus and the family of God that's around us into a new family of origin. We're opening ourselves up to Jesus' love and his grace and his forgiveness and his compassion so that we're transformed 
from the inside out, that, you, that you're a new creation and becoming a new creation more every day. And, and this only happens when we're actively following him. From the beginning, the invitation is come, follow me. Not believe in me, not pray a prayer of salvation and go back to living your life the way that it was, but follow me. The first followers were normal men and women who had families and relational networks and jobs and responsibilities. And then out of the blue, this rabbi came into their lives and said two little words that completely flipped their world upside down and interrupted every single routine and comfort. Follow me. And by responding to that, ultimately, they they were participating in changing the world. But in that moment, there would have been a mix of uncertainty and doubt and excitement and fear. And these first disciples, they had no idea what they were being called into. They didn't grasp the fullness of what Jesus was inviting them to be and to do. And yet they had to leave everything behind. The cost for these first men and women was enormous. But so was the benefit. Because they were becoming more like Jesus and learning to carry on his work in the world. Somehow, in the modern day, we've lessened the cost of discipleship. And in doing so, we've practically lost sight of the goal. It's actually possible now in America to be a Christian and look nothing like Jesus. To, to say, oh yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that he was the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. And I go to church every once in a while, and, and I pay my taxes, and I'm a good moral person. That's it. it sadly, that, that sums up a lot of American Christianity. But that's not following Jesus. That's not discipleship. You'll notice that here at River's Edge, we rarely call ourselves Christians, except to the outside world, because that's what makes sense. Um, Because as you read through the scriptures, you don't actually read that term. If you read cover to cover through the Bible, the word Christian appears three times in the scriptures. Three. And and the word itself uh, originated as an insult. It means little Christ. And that might sound like it's, oh, that's a, that's a good thing. That's what we want to be. But back in the day, it was an insult. So people say, oh, you little Christ. And, and eventually, followers of Jesus kind of culturally began to adopt that. And over time, Christianity, as we know it, was born. Rather than remaining kind of a radical, messianic, Jewish sect. But, but these first followers of Jesus, these first men and women wouldn't have identified primarily as being Christians or even members of a religion or a church. They would have understood themselves, first and foremost, to be disciples. And and this term, disciple, on the other hand, is used 300 times in the New Testament. And I would argue that this is the primary way that we were meant to relate to Jesus. Can you imagine if Jesus came to the fishermen in Matthew chapter 4, and he said, 
hey guys, how would you feel about identifying with me? Don't worry, you don't, you don't have to drop your nets. And, and I'm not actually going to ask you to change anything. I, I just need some people to believe in, in me and in what I'm doing. And, and hey, if you're willing to do that, I'll, what if I throw in this little cross necklace to sweeten the deal? It, it'll make sense in a few years when I, when I die on one. But, but I just need you to identify with, with me. What do you say? In, in fact, if you believe today, I'll throw in a second cross necklace absolutely free. <laughs> can, we even, can you even imagine Matthew chapter 4 asking for believer, people to identify? We can't imagine. It's impossible. It says, come, follow me. And for us, this, this following actually starts in belief. It starts with us placing our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus and, and his salvation and his future that he promises to those who follow him. So, so it starts there with belief, but it was never meant to just end there. Because disciples are different than believers. I'm going to read you what I think are the most challenging words ever spoken on discipleship. We're just going to go straight for the hardest one uh, and wrestle through it together as a community because we're all in process and we all need grace in order to follow after Jesus. But, but listen to this. These are the words of Jesus reclu- recorded in uh, Luke chapter 14. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters... In other words, value me over them. Yes, even over their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you and saying, look, they started, but they couldn't finish. Or suppose that a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether or not he's able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one who's coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. And I doubt that those crowds stayed large for very long. He's saying, count the cost. And many people do, and many people leave. Apparently this discipleship thing isn't for everyone. And yet, at the same time, It is. As the scriptures progress, we see that discipleship is for men and women of every race and nationality and and religious backgrounds and upbringing. It's for everyone. Jesus was the most radically inclusive leader in the ancient world. As far as we can tell, he was the first rabbi in history uh, to have female disciples. That was unheard of in the first century. 
And yet when you watch Jesus, he's constantly inviting in the ones who have been marginalized and excluded and ignored and cast aside. And the message in that is clear. Everyone is welcome. Not only that, but the people who followed him were some of the most ordinary, commonplace, and dysfunctional people around. That was the shock of all this. The the people that he's calling, they don't have pedigree or superior intellect or degrees or even a good moral record. The, The religious elite were shocked at who he hung out with. Prostitutes, Jesus? Are you serious? The the corrupt politician? That guy? The the foreign oppressor? The the woman at the well? Are you serious? Where are your standards, Jesus? Even his best disciples would not have made the cut with any other rabbi. Peter may have been his best guy. It's debatable. John seems to think he was pretty special too. Uh, but, but what happens with Peter, if you know the story? He's, he says, I get it. I get who you are. You're, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the one we've been waiting for. I, I, the Son of God, I'll follow you anywhere. I would die with you tonight. And the time comes, and what does he say? He says, I don't know that guy. And and the teenage girl responds, haven't I seen you guys like tagged in photos together or something? Aren't aren't you guys guys friends? I swear I don't know him. Let him die. What's it to me? But what what does Jesus say to him? He says, no, no, no. You're my brother. You're a rock. You're my disciple. And I'm going to build my church through you. And I'm going to build my kingdom through you. And together we're going to change the world. What's Jesus doing in that moment? Is he lying? Is he lying to Peter about who he is? Not at all. He's drawing out Peter's true identity with grace and love and and compassion and patience. This is the daily shaping of who Peter is, of drawing out the person that God knit together in the womb, the person that Peter was intended to be. And, And Jesus is drawing out over years of time, he's drawing out a kingdom builder. Someone who fully understands who Jesus is and in God, operating in God, is now discovering who they were intended to be all along. That's what discipleship is all about. You're becoming more like Jesus over time. And as a result, you're increasingly becoming the person that God meant for you to be as he designed and intended. But this process takes time, and it takes people. At River's Edge, we believe that all of this was meant to happen in community. Ultimately, we're all as individuals being discipled by Jesus, 
But we need other people in the process. We can't do it alone. We need help along the way. And, and so Jesus' new community was meant to include young and old, people brand new to Jesus and people who have been following him for half a century, all mixed in together so that together we, we can be disciples. Together we can figure out what it means to live and love and think and serve and lead the way that Jesus did. And, and the 24-7 shadowing of the first century, that's difficult or impossible for us today. That, that's just not how our lives are structured. But we have to change the way that we think about discipleship. It, it has to be more holistic. The, the church has sadly somehow reduced discipleship down to a canned program. So the way that it works is that I meet with my mentor in a coffee shop once a week, and we, we study through whatever the program is, or the book of Galatians or Ephesians, whatever. And, and we study the scriptures together, and, and when we're done studying the book of Galatians, or, or the 12 uh, meeting program is over, then we're done. Uh, and, and you go back to, to living your life. And, and we're all for studying the scriptures. I want to be clear on that. But by advocating for doing life together in intentional relationships, we're grasping for something more. Next week, we're going to officially launch uh, missional communities. And we'll explain more about what that is next week. Uh, but if you decide to join a missional community, uh, and I hope that all of us will, uh, you will find in that the most natural avenues that we have for discipleship. Uh, Rather than trying to live out all of our identities that we've talked about the last um, three weeks on separate days and times and places, uh, we want to commit to missional communities and see all of those identities happen at once. Because we were meant to, for this to happen in community, to be spurring one another on to follow after Jesus and live that life. Um, and, and honestly, this is going to look different for each one of us. And, and hopefully as we start launching missional communities, you get a sense um, for, for the freedom and diversity uh, that are allowed within these suggested uh, forms. But, but here's what this looks like in my life as just one example. First, it, it means that I've sought out older godly men uh, that can pour into me and, and give me advice that I can absorb things from to help me grow. So I regularly connect with my friends, um, Tim McDonald, uh, about life and marriage and church planting, um, and with Rick Vo, who some of you met a few weeks ago uh, at our prayer night, um, and my friend Rob, who lives in Hawaii, uh, and Tracy, who uh, is one of our, our elders here. And, and I watch these older godly men, and absorb what I can. I, I, I take notes. I listen to them. I, I watch the way they structure their lives and, and their free time and their finances and, and their family life and, and their giving and, and their missional living, all of it. So I, I absorb what I can for them, and I, I've asked very intentionally for some of these men to be in, in my life and speak into my life. And, and then I turn around and open myself up to, to sharing my understanding of the Jesus life with others. And, and this involves prayer, and it's going to look different for each one of us. 
Uh, and my wife and I, in this season, we, we just recognize our limited capacity. Uh, we're obviously in, in the initial stages of, of planting a church. Uh, I'm currently working multiple jobs in order to make that um, successful. We have a one-and-a-half-year-old boy uh, and a, another one on the way. It's like two months away from second baby, which can be all-consuming. And I have projects I'm working on the side. I just released my first book a few weeks ago and teaching here. And so there's all these other things going on. Additionally, my wife and I have talked, and we recognize that we've, we want a healthy marriage. Before any of that stuff can be successful, we, we have to have a healthy marriage, and that takes time and space and energy. And we, we want to plant, we want this to be a healthy church, and, and we want to be um, engaged with our, our family members, many of whom do not know Jesus. We, we want to be there for them as a faithful, loving presence and, and a witness to the goodness of God. Um, and we want to leave time and space open to connect with neighbors and people who don't know Jesus yet. And we want to leave time and space for people who do know Jesus to come along for the ride. And, and so, in, and you think you're busy in college. Just wait. Just wait till the babies start coming. Uh, you should wait, actually, by the way. And I hope I made that clear. Um, but, but through all of this, I recognize my limited capacity. I can live this out with a few people, not a lot. And and as missional communities come online, there's going to be a lot of um, kind of organic and intentional discipleship that happens in those communities. But for right now, in the uh, pre-missional community stage of our church plant, here's what this looks like. Uh, Me and the the guys that I'm in that relationship with, discipling, um, we meet up once a week or every other week at least as structured intentional time. And I leave the door open for for us to spontaneously connect outside of those times. And as we aim to share our lives together, here's what's on the table. Everything. Finances and giving and saving and financial responsibility and generosity and tithing. And, and, and sexuality, and, and dating, and, and marriage in, in an authentic way, and, and biblical knowledge that we're, okay, studying the scriptures or reading other Jesus-centered books that are growing us in our knowledge and awareness of God, and our prayer life, and, and bringing all of our relationships and friendships and family relationships, bringing all of it under the banner of, of Jesus' redemptive love, and, and forgiveness, and healing from past wounds and, and the spiritual disciplines and, and learning to be emotionally healthy and, and have healthy rhythms day to day, moment by moment of living with God, learning to listen to God and obey him, learning to actively follow Jesus daily. And, and at some point in that process, I'm going to turn to them and say, all right, let's talk about who you are, are going to love and serve and pour into and disciple. And, and, and that process will repeat itself. And ideally, throughout all of it, those select few people know that I'm available for them anytime, day or night, in a way that I'm not available uh, for other people. And, and hopefully they learn where the dishes are in my home as we do life together week in and, and week out shoulder to shoulder, 
And my prayer is that God will use that process to, to unearth the, the person that they're meant to be, as fully in Jesus, fully engaged as a disciple, that through the process they'll become more and more like Jesus and more and more whole. That's discipleship. And the consequence of all of this is that I get to watch less Netflix. And and, and as a community who commits to this, we're going to risk making less money and, and having less free time catching less Pokemon. But only those who hate their iPhones and their Xboxes and forsake the right to watch three back-to-back NFL games every Sunday can be my disciples. That there's a cost here. But the upside to all of this is that we're growing in our identities as disciples of Jesus. Learning to live, love, think, serve, and lead like Jesus. We're asking the question, what would it look like for Jesus to be a student at Whitworth? Or a carpenter? Or a stay-at-home mom? Or an accountant? Or a bus driver? Or whatever it is that you do. Let's, let's imagine that. Let's shoot for that together as a community. And as we do, we're becoming more like Jesus and, and learning to carry on his work in the world.